time that Isaiah is talking about. The things that Isaiah is prophesying about. The battles that, that are coming. You know, Jeremiah 29 is going to be talking about that exact thing. Trying to get the people's eyes ready to understand that they can trust God. Now, what has been going on the first nine chapters and in the history as Isaiah is reaching out to King Ahaz is that King Ahaz is trusting everything but God. King Ahaz is trying to make a deal with Assyria. He's trying to find neighbors who maybe are strong enough to help him against his enemies. And all the while, God through his prophets are saying, Hey, Ahaz, what about me? What if you just come to me? What if you sought me for help? And so God goes to him through Isaiah the prophet, and he says to him, Look, I guarantee you, these people that you're afraid of aren't going to be the ones that get you. The one that's going to get you is the one that you've run to instead of me. That was Assyria. He thought he was making friends with Assyria. And Assyria is going to betray that trust. So often in our lives, those things that we'll run to to trust rather than God are the very things that, that bring about or become a rod of correction in our life. There was a time in my life where I ran to my checking account. I had a great job. I, I was back in uh, 89, 90. I was making 38 bucks an hour. So back then, that was good money. Now, I don't know if it still is now. <clears throat> but back then, it was. In fact, the most money I ever made in my life was back in those years. And I was working 90 hours a week, prevailing wage jobs, double time, time and a half. My checks were so huge, it was ridiculous. I, I could buy whatever I wanted to buy. We had new house, new cars, boats, had all this stuff. That was the thing that I went to. So when we had a problem, I would run to the checking account. And if I could write a check, I could make the problem go away, right? So that was how I dealt with things. But what I ran to rather than God, my checking account, when I looked to for deliverance rather than to the Lord, became the rod of correction in the hands of God. The, the Lord talks about sending a devourer. Well, the devourer ate my checking account. <clears throat> and all those things I could count on dried up as I was trying to pursue the Lord. And God was teaching me, look, your money won't save you. Your money can't save you, but I can. And during that period of time in, in Kathy and my life, God delivered us in amazing ways. I mean, literally, I went from having as much as I could ever need to having nothing. <laughs> Couldn't buy food. And God provided. And not only did God provide, he provided more food than I could eat. So I had to give it away. And it was not the kind of, well, at least back then, in those days in California, I didn't know nothing about how to keep food. So if it was fresh food, you ate it or it went bad. So I walk around and pass it off to my neighbors and, and extend the blessing and explain to them how God had provided for us. So God will use those things. And in, in Israel's life, what they ran to was Assyria. And so God's going to use Assyria as a rod of correction. Now, God doesn't force Assyria to do anything. Assyria wants to do it. You guys get what I mean? God's not going in Assyria with just these nice people and 
So God took these nice people and he made them dirty, mean, and rotten, and they came against Israel. No, they were dirty, mean, and rotten before they ever started. But that was where they wanted to run. So Assyria is going to come with their engines of war, but God wants Israel to know that Assyria is following God's command. And not only is Assyria following God's command, but God's going to hold Assyria accountable for what they do. You see, God has a moral law. That moral law is written on the heart of every man, woman, and child. People know things are wrong, right? But I have to teach my children not to lie, but when they lie, they know they're not supposed to do it, don't they? People know, they know their conscience says, man, what am I, I shouldn't be doing this. And so God holds the nations accountable for how they do the things that they do. The, the, the hatred, the, the, the bile, really, that flows through the heart of Assyria, God's going to judge them for those very same things. So the people who will become the rod of correction will still answer to God for what they do. See, everybody's responsible, right? We understand what that word means. To be responsible means I'm able to respond. That means I'm able to, I make my choices. God is just big enough to orchestrate all that craziness and accomplish his will in it all without violating man, woman, or child's. They do what they want to do, but it just happens to be what God wants them to do. And then they will face the music for what they did, how they did it. Now, a lot of times, the way people would look at this is if Assyria, who, who, who followed God A, conquered Samaria, or Israel, who supposedly followed Yahweh, then what that meant was... Assyria's God must be stronger than Yahweh, right? But God wants the nations to understand, no, I'm running the whole thing. It has nothing, winning or losing, winning or losing the battle has nothing to do with how strong God is. And sometimes we battle with that when we go through battles in our life with different things. Maybe it's illness, maybe it's sickness, maybe it's a, a, just a difficult period in our life. And we think, oh my gosh, God, where are you? And God's like, I'm right here. I haven't gone anywhere. Just because you're suffering through difficulty or going through hardship doesn't mean the God of the universe has abandoned you. And that's what he wants Israel to understand as they come into this time of correction in their life. So this whole section that we're going to look at in chapter 10 deals with the destroyer being destroyed. Or the rod of correction getting the rod of correction. You'll see what I mean as we take a look. Isaiah 10, uh, beginning at verse 5. Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger, the staff in their hands is my fury. Against a godless nation I send them, and against the people of my wrath I command him to take spoil, seize plunder, tread them down like the mire of the streets. So what God says, first off, Hey, Assyria is mine. They're fulfilling my purpose. They are the rod in my hand. Assyria is the rod in my hand. And he says, I'm sending Assyria, 
which most people would consider a godless nation, against a godless nation. Now, what nation is God sending them to? Well, Israel first, and then Judah, right? They're just going to continue moving south. (laughs) So they're going to take Israel. God calls Israel a godless nation. Why? How can he call them a godless nation? Because you don't come to me. You, you, you give lip service, maybe. But there's, there's a great chasm between lip service and lordship, isn't there? And a lot of times when I talk to people, I know, I know that some people worry about things like lordship, salvation, but I, I just think it's helpful for us to understand or to comprehend that that in order for Jesus to be my Savior, he needs to be my Lord. When, when did that happen? You know, rather than, like in my life, I, I can remember saying a prayer, I can remember committing myself to him, but I also can remember the day when I finally bowed the knee and said, you're in charge, not me. Now, I'm not looking for a theological discussion on when along that road was I saved. doesn't matter. The point is we have to get to that place where we submit to God, where we submit to his lordship, that he's king. We say it all the time. He's lord of lords and king of kings. Is that real? For Israel, it wasn't real. For Israel, somebody else was in charge. Somebody else was the key. So the Lord is saying, I'm going to use these guys. They're going to be my correction to you. He calls them a, a godless nation because the moral state of Israel was worse than Assyria. Israel was more guilty. Why could Israel be more guilty? Because Israel's been given more light. Right? If you remember Jesus in, in Luke chapter 12, verse 48, listen to what he said. Listen to what Jesus said. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating, he'll receive a light beating. For everyone to whom much is given, of him much will be required. And from him uh, to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. So had Israel had a revelation of God? Now, Assyria is going to be guilty just like every man, woman, and child on earth is guilty. Romans chapter 1, verse 19 to 21 says that everyone knows there's a God. God has shown himself to everyone. In, in general revelation, there's, there is enough for man to know God is. And it's enough for God to say, that's what you're guilty about. We don't send missionaries to the pygmies in Africa because they don't know God, because they're, they're not dying, uh, they're not condemned because they don't know god they're condemned because they don't worship the god that they know exists missionaries go to show them that if if they if they were were ignorant we should build a wall around them protect them from getting any more information so they're not guilty but romans 1 we're going to look at it in a moment romans 1 19 through 21 says every man is guilty for For the general revelation that God has given in creation, the knowledge that every man has that there is a God. And I I owe something to him. That's what condemns man. That's what condemns him. John chapter 1, it says that light came in Jesus Christ, right? 
All the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hid in him. Light came to provide revelation for who God is. But man loved what? The darkness rather than the light. Why? Because their deeds are already evil. Because they rebel against the God they know exists. So Assyria is already guilty, but Israel's worse. Why is Israel more guilty if there's such a thing? Because Israel has had the light of revelation from God, right? Israel has the law given to them. Israel has the prophets. Israel has been having God speak to them. So the fact that Israel is in rebellion places them in a, in a harsher position, if you will, than even Assyria. So God is saying, look, I'm, I'm going to send him. Against the people of my wrath, I'm going to command him. He's going to come, take spoil, seize plunder, and tread them down to the streets. But look at verse 7. But he does not so intend, and his heart does not so think, but it is in his heart to destroy and cut off nations, not a few. He's talking about Assyria. He's saying Assyria doesn't know I'm the one directing them. Assyria just is on a mission to wipe out the world, to conquer the world. But God says, I'm, I'm in control. I'm driving this plane. I'm directing what's going on here. So God is saying, they don't know. Assyria doesn't know what's going on. And the reality is, that's a difficult thing for our pride, isn't it? It was a difficult thing for Nebuchadnezzar, who didn't know that God was the one who gave him the kingdom, when Nebuchadnezzar looked at the kingdom and said, look at this kingdom I have built. It was a difficult thing for me to realize that the kingdom that I had built all those years ago and the, 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 the money I had made and the place that we had bought and the place where we were living, that in an instant that could all go away. It's a, it's a blow to man's pride when he realizes that the God of the universe knows what he's doing. Assyria doesn't know. They can't see. They don't understand that there is a superior power working over them but assyria is responsible to that power remember romans 1 19 says for what can be known about god is plain to them whom everyone every man woman and child on earth what can be known about god is plain to them because god has shown it to them for his invisible attributes namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. Man is responsible for what he rebels against in creation. He says he doesn't know. For although they knew God, they won't honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they become futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts have become darkened. So this is the thing that lays Assyria under God's control. Hey, Assyria is guilty before God. And they're going to go in there and they're going to do immoral things. And God's going to hold them accountable. And when an Assyrian stands before Almighty God and says, Well, God, you never gave me the law. I didn't know these things were wrong. And God's going to say, When you were doing them, did your conscience ever say, This is wrong? And they will say, just like you and I would say, 
Yeah. Guilty. Guilty because you knew. 1 Corinthians 4, 7 says, For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you didn't? Paul, writing in Corinthians, said everything we have is, is something that we've, gained, we've received from the Lord. Everything. Our, our uh, work ethic. Yeah, you get that from the Lord. Our abilities. We get that from the Lord. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Is there anything in the earth since God created all that he don't own? All that gold and silver, who made it? God did. That's all his. It is all his. It all belongs to him. All the world and the fullness thereof. So <clears throat> we see the power of, of God moving, moving Assyria down. In verse 8 he says, for he says, uh, again this is Assyria speaking, Are not my commanders all kings? Is not Kalno like Karchemesh? Is not Hamath like Arpad? Is not Samaria like Damascus? As my hand reached to the kingdoms of the idols, whose carved images were greater than those of Jerusalem and Samaria, shall I not do to Jerusalem and her idols as I have done to Samaria and her images? So Assyria boasts, hey, there was better gods than your God, and we wiped them places out. So we're going to wipe out your God too. Now for Assyria, if they conquered them, they thought that meant that they were defeating the God of the universe. But in reality, the God of the universe was still commanding. As we'll see, as Assyria finds themselves under God's judgment. So we see this, this uh, um, boasting, the boasting of the destroyer. I have taken down bigger gods than these. So <clears throat> we see Assyria then, God speaking of what he'll do with the serious judgment. Now, keep in mind, as we're reading this, none of these things have happened yet. Assyria is coming, but they haven't come. They're conquering, but they haven't conquered. Shennacherib, when we get to chapter 38, you're going to read about all the things that Assyria says. And when, when we get to that part, remember that we talked about this way back in chapter 10, as Isaiah prophesied about what was coming. He says in verse 12, when the Lord had finished all his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, he will punish the speech of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the boastful look in his eyes. For he says, by the strength of my hand I have done it, by my wisdom, for I have understanding. I remove the boundaries of people and plunder their treasures like a bull. I bring down those who sit on thrones. My hand is found like a nest, the wealth of all the peoples. As one gathers eggs that have been forsaken, so I have gathered all the earth, and there was none that moved a wing or opened the mouth or chirped. Nobody could have stopped me. This is the boasting of Assyria. Now, it sounds a lot like the boasting of Babylon, doesn't it? It actually predates Babylon, so this is before, <laughs> but very similar. Keep in mind, when we study God's view of the kingdoms of the world, don't lose sight of what Daniel said. Remember Daniel talks about Nebuchadnezzar's dream? You guys remember Nebuchadnezzar's dream? He dreamed about a statue. Head of gold, chest of silver, 
uh, gold, silver, bronze, iron, iron mixed with clay, right? It kept. But the problem is it wasn't all gold. Why? Because the gold kingdom wouldn't last. It wasn't all silver. Why? Because the silver kingdom wouldn't last. What happens to the kingdoms of men? They come and they go. Every kingdom falls. What does history teach us? Right? We're not still under Roman rule, are we? Why? What happened to Rome? It fell. We still under British rule? Nope. What happened to British? They fell. Is the Middle East under Ottoman rule? No? How come? The Ottomans fell. Every kingdom of man does what? Comes and goes. It is not eternal. But in the dream, King Nebuchadnezzar saw something else. You remember? A stone from the heavens, not cut out with hands, hit the statue in the feet. And what happened? The whole statue exploded, right? So all the kingdoms of men are going to be destroyed by the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God, this little pebble, hits the feet, the whole statue explodes, and then that pebble grows into a mountain that fills the whole earth. The kingdom of God is the only kingdom that is eternal, that won't begin and then have an end date. The kingdom of men, according to Daniel chapter 7 and 8, are all beastly. They're described as beasts, different kinds of dragons, different kinds of beasts. Why? Because that's the way kingdom of men work. Ever since Genesis chapter 4, man has been killing his brother. You don't need a gun to do it. He did it with a rock back then. He'll do it with a stick. He'll do it with a stone. He'll do it with a spear, a sword, a knife, a sharp stick. It don't matter. Because the heart of man is fallen, corrupt, and rebellious. And the cure for that in man is Messiah, Jesus Christ. He's the cure, the one who is able to set these things right. So when we look at this, what's going on with Assyria, keep in mind there's no such thing for the world a sin of ignorance that they don't know. Because Romans 1.19 says they do know. They suppress the truth and unrighteousness. They suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Like holding a beach ball underwater. You can do it for a while, but the more you try to do, that beach ball keeps popping up here and there. And we'll see that the truth of the existence of God, God's moving and working in their lives, keeps popping up. But what do they do? Rather than when that ball pops up saying... Oh my gosh, looky there. There's, there's uh, uh, evidence. There's a reality of God moving and working in my life. They grab the ball and do what? Push it back underwater. Suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Suppress the truth. Hold it down. Why? Well, because I don't want to follow the God who exists. Look, I have several interviews of guys who went to the Reason Conference. The Reason Conference is a conference of all atheists all the atheists around the world gather at the reason conference to talk about how smart they are that there is no god and so these guys went to the reason conference just asked them one question if i could prove to you god exists would you worship him you know what every single one of them said no so is the issue i don't believe there's a god or i don't like the god that is that's a different issue altogether, isn't it? So this is the same thing that we see with Assyria. It's God is saying, look, Assyria, <coughs> I'm, I'm God. I'm the creator. You know. 
you know that I'm here, you know that I'm working, you know that I'm calling, and you're boasting, so you'll be held accountable for the boasting that's being done. Now he goes on to say in verse 15, Shall the axe boast over him who hews with it? What's God saying? It's like I, I went out, and let's, let's just pretend for, for a moment that I had some skill with carpentry. I have none, zero. Let's pretend I did. And I built an amazing uh, patio on the, on the second floor of my house with stairs going up to it so I could watch the fireworks on the 4th of July and see over my tree. And it was amazing. It was spectacular. And everybody came over to see this, this patio that I had built for a balcony outside the, the second, uh, second floor of my house. And... When they come walking up, the skill saw flipped over and started talking about how it had built it all. That's what the Lord is saying about Assyria. Should the one, should the axe say to the guy who's using the axe, look what I have done? God's saying, Assyria, you don't do nothing that I don't allow. That I haven't, that I have, I'm, God is saying he's the one wielding it. Look what it says, or the saw magnify itself against him who wields it. As if the rod should wield him who lifts it. Or as if a staff should lift him who is not wood. So it's like saying, here's the rod of correction. I'm, I'm gonna, my boys have been uh, disobedient, so I got the rod of correction to apply to the seat of learning, right? He's saying, did, did the rod of correction pick me up and carry me over there to, to give the whooping? No. No, Syria is this tool. This is what God's saying. So he says in verse 16, Therefore, the Lord God of hosts will send wasting sickness among his stout warriors. And under his glory, a burning will be kindled like a burning fire. The light of Israel will become a fire and his holy one a flame. And it will burn and devour his thorns and briars in one day. The glory of his forest and of his fruitful land, the Lord will destroy both soul and body, and it will be as when a sick man wastes away. The remnant of the trees of the forest will be so few that a child can write them down. So he several metaphors that he uses here. He describes uh, uh, Assyria like a big forest, and he describes his judgment like a fire. Now, it doesn't matter how big the forest is, Right? If a fire comes, the forest goes. Yeah? Just ask, ask Northern California. Right? All the fires have, have totally transformed um, uh, Redding and those places in Northern California because fire burns wood. And he describes Assyria as briars or brambles, uh, tumbleweeds. How does a tumbleweed stand up against fire? Not so good, right? Most of us, if we get tumbleweeds and, and we're, we're outside city limits, we may burn our, our weeds. It don't take very long for those to go up, right? Whew, they're gone. That's easy. So the Lord is saying, here's the judgment. The judgment he talks about in terms of fire. <laughs> and he also talks about it in terms of light. Right? Assyria is in darkness, but Israel is going to be the light. And ultimately, what provides the light for Israel, the Holy One of Israel? Who's that? 
Messiah. Yeah, that's Messiah. Messiah brings the light, delivers the light, right? John chapter 1. And, and the light of life, he comes as the light of life, and he delivers that light. And as he brings it, and as he shows it, and as he delivers it there, there's an opportunity for them, mankind, to respond to that light. So here in Isaiah, he's talking about the same thing. Here comes this light, the light of God that is, that is coming to give that. Now there's judgment there. Why is there judgment considered in the light that comes from God? Why would, why would that be speaking of judgment? Remember what we said about Luke chapter 12? What We're responsible for the revelation God gives us, right? The more revelation, the more responsible we are, right? To respond to that revelation that God has given. <laughs> to respond to what's going on. So God sees Assyria as nothing more than tinder, briar, a forest that will not be able to stand up to his fire. So... First part of the chapter, he says, Assyria is my whooping stick. Second part, he says, Assyria is going to be responsible for how they behave and what they do, and they will answer to me. And Assyria is going to be put down. Uh, Just like Assyria was a whooping stick for Israel, there will be a whooping stick for Assyria. The name of that whooping stick is going to be... Yeah. Nebuchadnezzar's coming. Nebuchadnezzar's coming. He's going to take Assyria down. And then Nebuchadnezzar's going to think awful highly of himself. And he's going to conquer the world. And then what? God uses him as a whooping stick. But then he brings another whooping stick against Nebuchadnezzar, don't he? Called the Medo-Persian Empire. The Medo-Persian Empire comes in. They don't even have to fight. They conquer Babylon overnight. Most people don't even know, and Babylon doesn't even know it's conquered for three or four days. That's how into it they were. So the Medo-Persians take over. God used the Medo-Persians as a whooping stick for Babylon, but then the Medo-Persians, there's a whooping stick God uses for them. The Greeks. Alexander the Great, we've heard of him, right? Alexander the Great comes in. He he defeats the Medo-Persian Empire. He puts them down but god uses them as a whooping stick but then there's another whooping stick for the for the greeks isn't it who's that rome and so on and so on and so on throughout human history and all the while what god is saying is look i'm in control and whether it's my people losing or my people winning it doesn't matter because i'm big enough to work all this out for your good and my glory. That's what Romans 8, 28 is all about, isn't it? For we know, not we hope, not we think, we know all things work together for good to those who love God, the called, according to his purpose. <laughs> God is saying, I am big enough to accomplish all of these things. Now the third part, beginning in verse 20, the third part of this chapter now deals with restoration. So you have judgment, judgment on one for Israel and for Judah, and then judgment on Assyria, and then restoration, because Isaiah always does that. Isaiah always says judgment always moves toward hope. 
There's always a remnant. God's always bringing out life, even in the midst of the, the, the horrible circumstances we find ourselves in. It's not for our destruction. It's not for our destruction. It's to bring life. God is bringing life. If he lets Israel continue down the road they're going on, all that the fruit will come from that is death. So God corrects it and breathes life back in. And breathes life back in. We see the same thing when we prune trees, don't we? If I just let a tree go wild, that tree will become unfruitful. It will eventually choke its own self out. Yeah, I have an apricot tree. I can prove it to you. Right? If I want to bring life back into that apricot tree, i got to prune it. And I can't just prune it once. I've done that. i got to keep pruning and keep pruning until I can get life back in, inside. And now when, by the time I get that tree, it may look like a raggedy old, holy cow, Jackie, I think you killed it. But I didn't. What I did was breathe life back in. And that's what God's doing. He's breathing life back in. He breathed life back into me. Because if God left me on the road I was on, all I was going to do was destroy my life, destroy my family's life, and anybody who got close to me. So what did God do? He brought the rod of correction. He corrected me, put my eyes on him, and breathed life back in. He does this over and over and over and over. But sometimes when we come to scriptures, guys, all we can see is this big picture of what about all those Assyrians? I don't know. God doesn't tell us the story. I just know they get judged. The story focuses on Israel, not on Assyria. But do you know the capital of Assyria? Anybody? Nineveh. Oh, wait a minute. I've heard a story about that place. There's a guy God sent to Nineveh, isn't there? And, and, and he didn't want to go, so he got eaten by a fish and puked up on a beach, right? But he brought the message God wanted for the Assyrians to the Assyrians. Now, surely they didn't listen. How's that book end? Oh, everybody, the, from the king down, repents. Puts on sackcloth and ashes? Yeah, before you get all focused on what you think you know is going on with these nations, why don't you back up and say, God's bigger than you are. He's bigger than me. If I can see God working in Assyria then, maybe he's been working in all of them all along. The story of the Bible doesn't tell us everything God did, does it? In the Gospel of John, doesn't it say, Jesus did more things than are written in this book. In fact, if we wrote down everything that Jesus did, all the books and all the libraries of all the world could not hold it. Right? So the Bible doesn't even pretend to tell us everything. God just says, look, I got it. Why don't you trust me? Why don't you trust that I, the God of the universe, the creator of it all, I might know more than you. What do you think? Possible? Just maybe? Took me like 20 some years to to bow a knee and say, God, you know more than I do. 
He had to take me to a place where nobody else could do nothing. There was no place else to run. The only place I could run was to him. Or I could continue to run away from him. And in that moment, God broke my heart and I came to him. He breathed life. He brought correction to breathe life. This is what God does. So we have the promise of restoration. Verse 20. In that day, the remnant of Israel, the survivors of the house of Jacob, will no more lean on him who struck them, but will lean on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. So no more will they look to Assyria to save them. Right? Oh, Assyria, you're our Savior. Whoops. There's another story in the Bible where men are going to do that. Isn't there? There's a book called, what is it? It's at the end. Oh, Revelation, that's right. Isn't there a guy in there that the whole world runs to for salvation? Only he can't save them. All he can do is bring death. There's another guy who can save, though. He comes on a white horse at the end, right? Antichrist and Jesus Christ. No more will they lean on that which struck them. They will lean on the Holy One of Israel in truth. Verse 21, a remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God. Oh, that word remnant is Sheer Jesheb. You remember that name? That's the name of one of Isaiah's kids. Yeah? His son, he named a remnant, will return. They're going to return to the mighty God. Don't you think that references back to the previous chapter, 9-6, when it says that, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. No, now it says these guys, the remnant's going to return, and they're going to lean on the Holy One of Israel. They're going to come to the Mighty God. Yeah, he's talking about Jesus Christ. He's talking about the, that fulfillment. Zechariah talks about the day when Jesus returns, that the nation of Israel is going to look up upon him, and weep as one weeps for an only son. They're going to look on him whom they have pierced. And they will weep as one weeps for an only son. Why? Because they're, they finally realize. They finally see. The veil is lifted. Verse uh, 22. <clears throat> for though your people Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will return. Destruction is decreed overflowing with righteousness for the Lord God of hosts will make a full end as decreed in the midst of the earth. God says, look, this is going to come, but it's a pruning. It's cutting away the diseased flesh so that the righteous may flourish. Cutting away the diseased flesh. Now God does that individually. God does that corporately. He's done it in my life. And if you look, you might be able to see the reality that he's done it in your life as well. He goes on now, verse 24. Therefore, thus says the Lord God of hosts, O my people who dwell on Zion, don't be afraid of the Assyrians when they strike with a rod, when they lift up their staff against you like the Egyptians did. Now, as God is speaking of the restoration, he's going to give them two examples. The first one is about the Exodus. You guys, don't be afraid of the Assyrians. Remember when Egypt used to do this to you? How'd you get out of that? Oh, I got you out of that. You remember? And he's going to point to Gideon. You remember when you were under the control of the Midianites? Uh, Wait a minute. How'd you get out of that? 
Oh, yeah, I got you out of that. Remember? This is what God is laying out for them. <clears throat> Don't be afraid of them. They're like those lifting up their staff against you like the Egyptians did. For in a very little while, <clears throat> my fury will come to an end. And my anger will be directed to their destruction. And the Lord of hosts will wield them like a whip. As when he struck Midian at the rock of Oreb. That's Gideon. And his staff will be over the sea as he did. Uh, and he will lift it as he did in Egypt. That's when the Red Sea parted. Right? God's given examples of how he's delivered his people. And in that day his burden will depart from your shoulder. And the yoke from your neck. And the yoke will be broken because of the fat. Look, he says, I'm going to set you free. The burden and the yoke illustrate their servitude to other nations. And God says, I'll break the yoke. I'll break the yoke. Which also reminds me of something Jesus said, right? It's on the wall out there. Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. What's God saying? Connect yourself to me. Put yourself in servanthood to me. <clears throat> the servitude of the nations God says he's going to break. But he's calling the people to be in service to him. Then at the very end of the chapter, God's going to once again look at Assyria, okay? So he said, Assyria is going to be my whip and stick. I'm going to judge Assyria for their sins. They don't get a pass. And then I'm going to bring a remnant. I'm going to bring life through what happens. And then he comes back to Assyria. He talks about the, sh the sureness of their uh, um, coming upon them. Verse 28. He has come to Ayath. He has passed through Migron to Mich uh, to Michmash. He stores his baggage. They have crossed over the pass at Geba. They lodge for the night. Ramah trembles. Gibeah of Saul has fled. Cry aloud, O daughter of Galim. Give attention, O Lashah, O poor Anathoth. Madmina is in flight. The inhabitants of Gebim flee for safety. This very day he will halt at Nob. He will shake his fist at the mount of the daughter of Zion at the hill of Jerusalem. He's saying, Assyria's coming. Assyria's coming. He's just describing this downward climb from north to south coming against Israel. But as he's talking about it with the very sense of, oh, here comes this judgment. Oh, it's coming. It's a sure thing. It's going to come down on us. In verse 33, he says, Behold the Lord God. <clears throat> that phrase is saying, Behold, God is in control. That's what that phrase means. Behold, Lord God, the sovereign God. Sovereign over the whole earth. He created it all. He's the one who's working. Behold, the Lord God of hosts <clears throat> will lop the boughs with terrifying power. The great in height will be hewn down. The lofty will be brought low. What's God say? The pride? What, what happens? God, God opposes the proud, but does what? Gives grace to the humble. What's a picture of opposing the proud? Taking a tall tree and lopping it off. The proud, tall tree cut off at the knees. So what God says, here comes Assyria. The judgment is coming. But God says, remember, I'm going to bring the proud low. I will cut down the thickets of the forest with an axe. And Lebanon will fall by the majestic one. So everywhere Isaiah talks about this concept of, <coughs> of uh, <coughs> correction, everywhere he brings out this picture, he also brings out a picture of hope. 
a remnant, Messiah, light being delivered to the people, God breathing life into the situation so that life can come forth, because that's how God works. And really, if we look at our own lives, we ought to be able to say, yeah, that's what it looks like. Because sometimes I just go through dark, pitiful times. No? And when I go through those dark, pitiful times, it's helpful to me to remember God's going to bring light out of this. God's going to breathe life forth. I just, I just got to keep my eyes on him. Don't start trusting other things, right? Trust in the Lord, and he will deliver. All the way through Isaiah, this is the picture, right? This disobedient Israel is going to become that Israel, the exalted Israel. The exalted Israel we get to see next week in Isaiah chapter 11. One of, uh, well, there's so many great places in Isaiah, but it'll be a favorite of yours, I'm sure, when we get a chance to take a look at it. We'll take a look at that next week. Amen? Why don't you stand with me? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the opportunity that we have to come before you. God, we thank you for the opportunity that we have to praise your holy name, God, to glorify you, to acknowledge that you are the God of the universe, that you are the one who has accomplished great and awesome things in our life. Lord, I pray that you would do a, a perfect and amazing work, Lord God, that you would move on behalf of, of each and every one of us, Lord, that you would accomplish your purpose that we might know that indeed you our, are our God and that we put our trust and our hope and our faith, it's all in you, Lord. We pray, Lord, that you would be glorified and magnified in this place. God, we pray that you would teach us your ways. Help us learn, God, as you show us, as you lay things out for us at that we can see and understand and recognize, wow, look at, this is how God moves, this is how God works. Lord, be glorified in this place. Open our eyes to the reality, God, that you never stop moving, you never stop working, you never stop accomplishing your purpose. And Lord, we give you the praise and the glory for it all as we give you thanks in Jesus' name.